nothing we read about Douglas Milford, the UFOs, or any of the other strange happenings in this book should be taken at face value at all. If you're trying to tell me that one of the co-creators of Twin Peaks is forgetting the stuff that he done wrote, I don't buy that for one minute. The use of Native American culture is too simplistic and makes Native Americans magical and mystical. This book remaining a mystery is part of the whole experience of the show Twin Peaks. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us again on Back to the Double R. Today, we're diving deep into Mark Frost's first Twin Peaks book, The Secret History of Twin Peaks. This beautifully crafted epistolary novel is full of surprises and contradictions, and we're excited that you've joined us for this look at what may have happened before and after the events of seasons one and two, before we pivot into Twin Peaks The Return, the start of next year. I'm Damon, and something's wrong. The message holds the answer, just as I thought, but I've misinterpreted it. I'm Jonathan, and a wise man once told me that mystery is the most essential ingredient in life. Hi, I'm Colin, and I remind you to look into the darkness. Hello, I'm Jennifer, and mysteries enliven existence. Secrets strangle it. So a bit of background here on the secret history of Twin Peaks. Um, As Damon said, this is an epistolary novel, or if you want to use perhaps some modern day parlance, it's essentially a found footage book, right? Just like all the other uh, Twin Peaks books are, right? Every single one of them is sort of crafted as like, hey, we found a diary or hey, we found these tapes. This is literally uh, Gordon Cole sending, well, Agent TP, or as we come to learn, Tamara Preston, who is a character in the third season, uh, you know, this is essentially her getting this, you know, book that's meant to be sort of a dossier of all the stuff that we're seeing in here, right? So it's not meant to be read sort of like a traditional novel, you know, it's meant to, you know, you're sort of Agent Preston picking through all the things she's finding in, you know, the box, and you, you you get like sort of the narrative that the archivist is writing along with sort of uh, Agent Preston's footnotes in the margins, right? Uh, interestingly, the the all of the Agent Preston stuff is, you know, done in like red ink. And there are parts of this book that are designed to be looked at with 3D glasses, right? So if you like look at some of the stuff through like the red lens, all those notations and things like that go away. There's also a set of hidden images, things like that. So, um, you know, they do, I think, a really good job of like the presentation of this book, right? It's, you know, like got a lot of like great illustrations, like the binding and like the cover is beautiful. It's like meant to be really sort of, I think like a tactile experience versus, you know, Laura Palmer's diary, which is just a book or, you know, when you read uh, um, Cooper's autobiography, right. It, again, just, you know, meant to be sort of a book or something, you know, read this, I think is meant to be engaged with on a sensory level is certainly, you know, touched. All right. So um, the book was released October 8th, 2016, which is about six or seven months before the premiere of Twin Peaks to return. And, you know, Mark Frost is the credited writer, but I mean, he and David Lynch wrote all 18 episodes of the return and they definitely would have been into production at this point in time. So, you know, he's writing secret history with sort of the knowledge of what is going to be happening in the third season of Twin Peaks. And there's like a lot of, I think, things in here that will, you know, once we're all done, we'll get a chance to go back uh, when we read Final Dossier and kind of see 
you know, how well this book sort of prepares you for what we're going to see in the third season. And I'm sort of glad that I didn't like read it uh, before. I'm, you know, glad I watched season three and then got this experience. Although you could easily like read this, not be in any way spoiled for the third season and sort of enjoy what's going on. Um, they did it like a trailer for the book that was released on July 27, 2016. Um, I couldn't find out who directed it, but it like, it's meant to be very, very Lynchian. It's like, you know, got like this sort of like static tape sound and they, you know, they opened the box with the razor blade and you see sort of different like documents and things like that. Um, um, one thing uh, that I might want to check out at some point, either, you know, on Audible or uh, YouTube is the audiobook of Secret History of Twin Peaks. Um, among the original Twin Peaks actors, uh, Kyle McLaughlin, Mark Frost, Michael Horse, Chris Mulkey, and Russ Tamblin all reprise their original roles. Uh, and then Frost, Horse, and Mulkey, they do some additional voice work. Um, um, David Patrick Kelly does some voice work in uh, the audiobook, even though Jerry Horn isn't you know, in the text or at least doesn't have a speaking role in the text. There's three actors from season three who voice characters. I won't say what roles those actors play in the third season, but I will mention them. Uh, Robert Nepper is Doug Milford, who is sort of the main character of Secret History. Uh, James Morrison, who uh, is in the third season, voices uh, Major Garland Briggs. Obviously, Don Davis, who passed in 2008, would you know, not be around to lend his voice to this work. And an actress named Amy Shields uh, voices Audrey, Norma, Margaret Lannerman and Mrs. Paul Lance. Uh, fans of Broadway will uh, enjoy the vocal work of Len Carew, who is the original Sweetie Todd. He does Presidents Jefferson and Nixon. And then the voice of Agent Tamra Preston uh, is read by the actress Annie Worsling, although that is not the actress who plays that character in the third season. Uh, this book also reveals another character who will be in the third season. Uh, it's Frank Truman, who is uh, Sheriff Truman's brother. A lot of the images uh, that we're going to see in the book have like codes that can be deciphered through careful reading and or the use of sort of internet detectives, if you want to just take that route. Um, and I also think that it like sort of portends that like some of the, you know, the puzzling we saw in like the first couple of seasons, especially with some of the Bob clues might be more kind of the brainchild of like Mark Frost. I don't think David Lynch is too particularly interested in like leaving a trail of breadcrumbs for people to decipher things. So uh, it's kind of nice. I think we get to take a peek into how Frost perhaps views the Twin Peaks universe. And then, you know, with a book that's coming in at like 350 plus pages, we're not going to get to every little part in the narrative, but I just wanted to take some time here. If any of us want to highlight sort of a section or a part that we're maybe not going to discuss, you know, in depth or, you know, something that sort of tickled your fancy or, you know, that we otherwise want to shout out before we get into the main discussion. I don't know why, but I found the scene with the shady prospectors um, just hilarious. <laughs> what is it? Like Denver Bob and Wayne Yeah, Denver Chance. Bob. Denver yeah. Bob. <laughs> And at both of which I think are like pretty aptly named, uh, you know, given sort of like the fire walk with me poem, right? Uh, 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 you, I had a real kick out of those sections. Um, Jennifer, come on, you got any? I mean, I think just generally it's super interesting that a lot of the minor characters are coming to the forefront in the story. So I found that really interesting. Like people who on Twin Peaks were um, just sort of like, I don't know, comic relief, you know, like it never occurred to me that some of these people would be central to the story. So that's interesting. And I think we'll talk a lot about those characters today. 
uh, one thing that I like that I don't know if we're going to get into is the um, the fact that the book draws on a lot of the uh, early UFO history that is actually up here in Washington. Um, and, uh, you know, so some of some of the stuff is, uh, you know, we could actually, uh, you know, hop in a car and we could all take a little road trip uh, to some of the sites of the very earliest uh, UFO sightings. Um, so that's always fun. I guess the two things I'll shout out is I real quickly, I do like that you get it. So um, in Twin Peaks Fire Walk, Carl Rod has the line where he says, oh, I've been places. And even though like Mark Frost had nothing to do with that movie, he sort of pays it off here in, you know, secret history when you find out that Carl Rod was, you know, along with Margaret Lannerman and Doug Milford, one of the people who end up, you know, experiencing an abduction of some sort in the Twin Peaks woods. And I was also just a huge, huge fan of the section that's probably, I think, roughly in the middle of it where um, it's Hawks that are retelling the story of like, you know, Big Ed and that old Hurley Luck. Like, I just like it, it was so like crystal clear, like Michael Horse's voice, even though I didn't like listen to the audiobook that, you know, Frost, I think, really just has a you know, masterful touch with like, I think kind of all the voices of the characters, even, you know, the archivist who spoiler alert is revealed as uh, Briggs. I mean, there's just sections of this where you're like, Oh yeah, I can hear Don Davis like a hundred percent, you know? So I, I, like, I think, you know, Frost just, you know, mastery of sort of all these little characters and their voices and, you know, how they would sound. And it's a real treat, I think, for, you know, Twin Peaks fans, especially longtime fans like me to sort of, you know, hear like, you know, those voices in your head while you're reading the book. Very, very fun. If you've read this book, you know that there are a lot of contradictions in it between what is found here in the text and what we saw on the show. And uh, many readers have puzzled about this uh, pretty extensively. There's a lot of discussion about this on the internet because as you may have noticed, this is not the story that we know about Big Ed, Norma and Nadine. We know that Cooper was stabbed and not shot. We know that Ben Horn won the civil war and that that's not the symbol that appeared on the log lady's leg. Readers have suggested many different explanations for these and the many other discrepancies in the book, from unreliable narrators, to time travel, to alternate realities, to plain old sloppy writing on Mark Frost's part. But if we discard what to me are the very unsatisfying and unlikely possibilities that Mark Frost either doesn't know his own work or is just messing with us for the sake of doing so, I think the most likely explanation is that this dossier is within the world of Twin Peaks, either a fake or was tampered with after the fact of its creation by Major Briggs. I'm not going to attempt to chronicle here every discrepancy in the text. Um, that's already been done elsewhere. There are reviews of the book that include a lot of these, as well as a fairly exhaustive list on the Twin Peaks wiki. Um, but I do want to point to some specific elements that, to me, are particularly telling and suggest a couple of possible explanations for what we see here in the book. I'm sure that many readers noticed that the archivist uses a capital I in the place of the number one. Um, this to me seems like an odd choice uh, unless the key, the one key on his typewriter doesn't work um, or it doesn't have one. 
And, you know, I actually did some poking around about this online and I found that, you know, some of the really early cheap typewriters, they tried to minimize how many keys they had and they actually would not have a one key. You would be expected to instead use a lowercase l. Um, but in this case, we actually see a picture of his typewriter. There's a full page image of the typewriter. Um, oddly, it appears to be a German typewriter. There are a couple of words in German and umlaut keys, um, but there is a um, an Arabic numeral one. So um, that can't be the explanation. I can't attribute any specific significance to this oddity, um, but I do want to point that uh, in a couple of instances, we have what are purported to be authentic documents that include that same idiosyncrasy. And there's two of these that are really notable to me. First, there is the receipt for Milford's purchase of a car in Seattle. All the rest of the numbers on the receipt are Arabic numerals. So unless the salesperson had this same strange typing habit that Major Briggs appears to have had, this document has to be fake. Um, and probably produced by Briggs himself, if he is truly the archivist. The second, and I think more interesting and significant one, is the deed for the sale of the Packard Mill. For one thing, for me, it seems really out of character that, um, from what we saw of Ben Horn at the end of season two, that he would have, you know, gone back to his sort of wily ways about the the um, the Ghostwood development project. Um, but again, this is a document where we see the capital I in place of the numeral one. And I'm even more skeptical of this whole section of the book because the timelines here just don't add up. Based on the date that the sale is supposed to have occurred, um, the sale of the property back to Benjamin Horn is supposed to have occurred the day after Dr. Jacoby's memo describing his disturbed condition and civil war delusions. It seems really implausible to me that Ben would have stopped the Civil War to buy back the mill from Catherine and then return to that delusion and shared this information with no one. And the account of the subsequent events at the bank uh, with Audrey Horn also rings false, as these events would have transpired the same day as the final May Day entry in the dossier. It's plausible to me that Briggs could have a morning edition of the paper and thus gotten that clipping and might have hastily typed up some notes about it and slid it into the dossier. But the fact that he has a letter allegedly from Audrey to Ben uh, seems very unlikely. According to his own notes, he left for listening post alpha and ended the dossier at about noon that day. Uh, so this note would have had to have been added after the fact, if in fact it's genuine, uh, which to me suggests that this has been tampered with. There are other timeline issues like this also. Um, Hank's note from prison is supposed to have been written three years after his incarceration. Um, but again, that would be well after the date that the dossier ends. And knowing what we will learn about what befell Major Briggs after the events of the show, it is highly unlikely that he could have added this document to the dossier himself. Another place where the timeline falls apart and spells fraud is the postcard from Norma to her parents. It's postmarked April 1969 and bears the first man on the moon stamp. But as the archivist himself points out later in the dossier, the first man didn't set foot on the moon until July of that year. So this too must be a fake document. There's no way that that stamp would have been, uh, would have been in circulation at the time that it's postmarked. The notion, the notion that the dossier is 
fake or at least tampered with would provide to me at least some explanation for the factual errors in the book. But the obvious question raised by my fake or tampered dossier hypothesis is why? So allow me to briefly offer, offer a couple of ideas before turning, uh, turning this over to my co-hosts. One possibility that stands out to me is that the major himself embedded false information and documents into the dossier. This could all add up to some sort of code, perhaps. And as Jonathan pointed out earlier, there are hidden messages in the book, um, like an image of Bob transposed over a photograph of Leland that's almost invisible without the aid of 3D glasses, like those worn by Dr. Jacoby. And likewise, it's been pointed out that there are clues in the image of the Bookhouse Boy's favorite books uh, that could lead one to find the message, fear the double. So possibly these factual errors are themselves some sort of code or could be intended to signal to the right reader, perhaps Sheriff Truman or some other ally of the majors in town, that the dossier is not what it appears to be at first glance. The other possibility that occurs to me is that the major may have been intending to mislead some nefarious actors by creating a massive red herring. Again, only apparent as such to those who he might want to recognize it as a fake. UFOs and a wild story about a dead man who was missing from town for years and who can't correct the record would make a great cover-up for the, in my opinion, even stranger phenomenon that we know is happening around Twin Peaks. So if the goal here was to mislead or cover up what Briggs may really have known or may really have been up to, uh, it's possible that nothing we read about the exploits of Douglas Milford, the UFOs, or any of the other strange happenings in this book should be taken at face value at all. The other possibility that occurs to me is that somebody, possibly Cooper's evil doppelganger, deliberately altered the dossier after its creation to put the FBI on a false scent. If you could get Gordon Cole chasing UFOs, maybe he wouldn't find the Red Room. This would explain the addition of materials um, like Hank's letter that would not uh, that would have had to have been added after the final entry of the dossier, but it would not so clearly explain why Evil Cooper or some other dark entity from the Red Room would want to mislead investigators about, for, for instance, the timeline of Big Ed and Norma's relationship or Dr. Jacoby's therapeutic practices. So. I've spoken <laughs> for too long, but my question for you all is, what do you make of my theory uh, that the dossier is either fake or altered? Um, if you disagree, uh, how might you explain these strange discrepancies that it contains? And if you agree that this is plausible, who do you think is responsible and why do you think they would have created this uh, collection of misleading documents? I love your theory, Damon, and it kind of blew my mind because I heard it after I read this whole thing. Um, but I had also noticed inconsistencies while I was reading it and initially thought some of them were typos. But but then, you know, like you're saying, it just it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like um, there's a Fairchild airfield that is in Briggs's typewritten notes, he types it as Fairfield and like Briggs would obviously know the name of this airfield. So um, that gets me wondering if he, like you're saying, maybe he put um, some obvious errors in it so that somebody reading it would know that something was amiss. Um, 
there's another part about Pete playing checkers, not chess. And and we know from Twin Peaks that that Pete is an expert in chess. And so that seems like an obvious call out, you know, shouting. It's shouting to people reading it that that something in here is not right. Um, it also has Norma's mother dying and and we don't and that would have been before the time on Twin Peaks when we see her mother alive. So that that seems strange and um, you know, a whole bunch of other things. So so yeah, I think that it was I I'm kind of starting like as you laid out all of these theories, I'm starting to think it's a combination of things that perhaps it was tampered with and things were added later, but also that Briggs might have intentionally inserted clues into it. Um that's that's the only explanation that works for me is that it's a combination of things at work. I like that. I I love this theory as well. It um makes sense to me. <laughs> both sort of within the the uh, epistemology of the show um that there could be this document and it could be a fake and it works in our own universe with the notion that frost and to whatever degree lynch might might have been involved were interested in creating a document uh, ancillary to the show that is false and contradictory like that to me um, suggests something about uh, their, their meta perspective on the creation of art and the creation of business and, or, or, you know, trying to, trying to create art within a business structure and the, the degradation of truth uh, that sort of inherently happens. Uh, so I think, you know, they're, they're having a lot of fun with this and, you know, I think that the things that you have identified are, are, uh, a lot of fun and, and sort of hold together. Um, I'm, I'm going to try and, uh, problematize it a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. to use an old grad school word, uh, <laughs> in, in my section. Um, but, uh, you know, the only other, thing that I could imagine sort of within the context of the show is, is that possibly this is a slightly alternate twin peaks. I could, I could sort of imagine, I haven't seen the third season yet, but I could sort of imagine that you, you go into uh, the red room uh, from one twin peaks and come out in a, you know, a slightly different version in the multiverse. Like I could sort of buy that. Uh, but, um, but otherwise I don't know. So Colin, I'm, I'm going to encourage you to hold on to that thought. Um, because, uh, you're actually going to see some stuff in season three that lends some credence to that theory. Uh-huh. I would, I would argue though, that it still doesn't account for things like the capital I on mm-hmm. the, um, bill of sale for, uh, for the mm-hmm. Packard mill. Um, that, you know, that to me doesn't make sense in, in, in any, any reality. <laughs> and then, you know, I have to add in from Riverdale, which, you know, we know is influenced by Twin Peaks. The current season of Riverdale has this, I think it's a five episode storyline where it's in a parallel world that looks exactly like Riverdale, but they're calling it River Vale. So that, that seems like what you're talking about there, Colin. <laughs> You know, to back up a bit, and this is Damon and I had a little, you know, time we, you know, brush up against these areas where we might be like, what should we reveal and what should we not reveal? 
uh, you know, it came up that, you know, some of the other Twin Peaks books have discrepancies, right? Like Secret Diary has discrepancies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the autobiography of the Special Agent Deja Cooper has discrepancies. But I would sort of chalk those up because, I mean, they were both published during sort of the initial run of the show. And, you know, as we know, right, like once, you know, they got kind of beyond the pilot and the first season, like Frost and Lynch were pulled in a bunch of different directions. And, you know, Jennifer Lynch writes the diary, Scott Frost writes the autobiography of Cooper. And so like inherently in there, there's things that are sort of like, you know, contradicted by say like, you know, the movie or some stuff that, you know, changed in terms of the storytelling, those type of discrepancies I'm going to chalk up is just like, hey, man, that's sort of like what happens when you have multiple writers working on, you know, serialized forms of entertainment that's in sort of like a nascency, right? Like they didn't realize Twin Peaks was going to become this huge universe and like this, you know, phenomenon. But if you're trying to tell me that like Mark Frost, 25 years later, after he you know, was one of the co-creators of Twin Peaks, like, is, like, deliberately forgetting, like, stuff that he done wrote in, like, the first couple of seasons. I don't buy that for one minute. And I do think that, like, you know, kind of as I was saying before, right, you get to, you know, this is kind of a peek in this sort of Frost mind, right? Like, you know, ah, you know, he's maybe sort of the clue master of, you know, Twin Peaks, right? So, you know, I think it's, like, deliberately, you know, misleading people or perhaps he wants you to sort of piece together, different forms of you know what's going on here and i will say i mean that you know twin peaks man is you know it's all about like mirroring and doubling and you know we've already seen that hey cooper has an evil doppelganger who is to say that there can't be worlds that are doppelgangers or perhaps doppelgangered as in multiples so you know like dan was saying just perhaps keep that little nugget in the back of your mind and we've already said things too like well, what was Mulholland Drive originally pitched as, right? It's sort of an Audrey goes to Hollywood. So all that stuff is out there. And I think fair game for interpretation. I'm I'm glad that um, that you told us that that there are things that there are secret things we can see with 3D glasses. And I wish I had 3D glasses accessible <laughs> that I could use with the book. But, you know, that just lends credence to the, the fact that this whole book is here for us to decode and, um, and I would imagine that that Mark Frost would enjoy that people are catching errors and wondering about the errors and puzzling over it. Um, and and then the dossier was left at a crime scene. And so all of this seems like just one big invitation. So I think that adds to the whole pleasure of reading it is finding these mistakes and kind of puzzling over them. Well, and, you know, I definitely think like, you know, the fear of the double message, which is another like really fun part of the book, because you get to be like, hey, Lucy reads Stephen King. That's awesome. Right. Like, uh, uh, you know, like uh, who is the um, oh, it's uh, Sheriff Truman. His favorite book is To Kill a Mockingbird. So you're like, OK, they had a lot of fun, like matching like stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, Hank was a bookhouse boy, too. He's reading Double Indemnity. Right. So but, you know, when it says fear of the double, I mean, it, it, as implied by the end of secret history, it certainly seems like, you know, Major Briggs has an encounter with perhaps Cooper's double. And I think that's a clear cut warning, you know, from Briggs to, again, like perhaps either of the Sheriff Trumans <laughs> that we, you know, could be seeing down the line here who might, you know, pick up this or perhaps Hawk or another member of the Bookhouse gang who, or, you know, the Bookhouse boys. So, you know, I think there's certain things that are Briggs and certain things where 
who knows, right? Like, like I think the, you know, the stuff with the deed or like Norma's postcard is, that's way, way open for interpretation. I'll just close by saying, since you pointed out double indemnity, that uh, I wish James would have read double indemnity because it would have saved him and us a lot of frustration in season two. <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> All right, so my theme is expanding the world and all, you know, confess that I read Secret History, but in terms of like, you know, I didn't read all of it for the rewatch. I kind of like read as much as I could and then kind of like skimmed. So I'm going to cover material that goes through basically about the first 57 pages of Secret History of Twin Peaks. And, you know, so he, you know, sets up the, Frost sets up the dynamic between the archivist who is, well, at least is, uh, 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 Briggs, although it could be, there could be multiple archivists. I think that's also a point of, you know, discussion that we could, you know, bring up here. Uh, and then, of course, like Agent Preston's notes, right? So, uh, you know, this account takes us all the way back to 1805 during the Lewis and Clark expedition. You know, so, you know, as such, uh, you know, Lewis Clark, uh, Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce, and even, you know, President Thomas Jefferson have their voices and points of view representative within the narrative. So, you know, we're going from, you know, like the tiny little town of Twin Peaks to like, hey, we are dealing with actual like, you know, like American historical figures, right? You know, we're, we're you know, we're dealing with presidents and famous explorers. And you know, we kind of see that all throughout the book where even some of the people in the UFO section are, you know, based on like actual real life people that, you know, you know, you can look up and read about. Right. So, you know, I don't think Mark Frost is at all being subtle here in like this secret history and suggesting that sort of the supernatural forces of the lodges are intertwined with the fates of these historical figures, especially, you know, here with the sort of Lewis and Chief Joseph, right, where, you know, there's a scene very, very early on and then like in the book here where, you know, Lewis, you know, he goes into the woods near what will be Twin Peaks and has sort of a supernatural experience, whether he goes into the White Lodge or the Black Lodge or something else entirely, I think is open to interpretation. And, you know, they even like have the drawing of the uh, sort of the Jade Owl Ring, right, which, of course, factors large into, you know, fire walking me and it's going to be a big part of the third season, which also I think begs the question, like, okay, is this, you know, if this is perhaps like a deliberately false narrative, or if there's been clues, like, you know, is some of this stuff we're reading actually true, right? Is that, you know, like a drawing done in, you know, Lewis's hand as we're sort of like led to believe, Right. So, so, you know, how far back does the lie go or are there perhaps parts of it that are true? So, you know, regardless of where you might lie on that, you know, uh, uh, you know, we're going from something very small to something very vast and expansive. And so, you know, I guess sort of, you know, my questions for you guys, um, you know, does expanding the universe of the show into sort of, you know, the larger American narrative, like detract or sort of enhance our enjoyment of Twin Peaks, maybe, you know, give an example and, uh, you know, some stuff that might back up your justifications here. I, I think it enhances it. I'm I'm not totally up on all of my conspiracy theories, but it is interesting to have the UFOs and Nixon and Eisenhower and uh, L. Ron Hubbard and Dianetics and Parsons, who I'd never heard of, um, all kind of intertwined in here. And then the Bohemian Club, which I'm I'm sort of intrigued about because that's a 
men's, you know, an old men's club in San Francisco that um, all of these rich and famous people are a part of. They have these mysterious um, gatherings in the summer at their camp up in Sonoma County um, along the Russian River. And I got to visit there one time and I started to pull out my camera and they they told me I couldn't take pictures. So that like added to the whole, um, you know, creepy and mysterious vibe of the place. Um, but, you know, it's rumored that all sorts of important deals have happened that, you know, pretty much every Republican president has been a member of the Bohemian Club. Um, and in the dossier, they mention a connection because Bo Bohemian Club has owls as a symbol, which I hadn't even connected to Twin Peaks before. Um, so all that I think is, is really satisfying, um, you know, connecting things to crazy military stuff, UFOs, conspiracy theories. Um, and, and even though we've talked a lot about owls, I hadn't thought about the Bohemian Club in relation to Twin Peaks. So I thought that that, that fit in well with the whole narrative um, and spookiness of it all. Um, and I also got this tinge of delight because the current season of American Horror Story touches on UFOs and and brings in president eisenhower and that he made a deal with the aliens in exchange for various things and then we got some of that same you know this must have been kind of a common um conspiracy theory but we got some of that in in the dossier as well so to me it connected a lot of um kind of elements i've seen in other popular culture artifacts i agree with jennifer uh pretty much completely right down the line, but I'm going to stake out the alternative uh, position just uh, in the service of good podcasting. <laughs> uh, so, so I, I, I actually agree with everything you said, Jennifer. I think that stuff is fun. I think, you know, it's, it's something that we love. Uh, you know, America is a young country as it is currently organized. It is uh, a political um, a, a assertion. It is uh, a, a colonization of a continent. Um, you know, it is um, an exploitation of another continent and its people. I mean, it's really um, a big, messy affair. And, um, and so it's very satisfying to be, you know, sort of poking holes in it and looking for the truth behind the story. There's something about it, you know, if, if there is an American, uh, personality, um, it is, it is maybe the conspiracy theorist. You know, and I think we're seeing that in our politics right now. And so they're definitely tapping into that. And I agree that it's it's fun in these connections to the real wor world uh, or, or, you know, things that are happening in the real world that also may be mysterious or whatever uh, is is very gratifying. Um, but I'll say in terms of art, and again, I'm sort of making this up on purpose, but in terms of art, there is a degree to which you dilute the um, sort of the, the, the potency or the efficacy of the televised story 
the more you, you know, kind of lard on, uh, old conspiracy saws, um, you know, they say in, in, in filmmaking, you know, the scariest monster is the one you don't see. And that bears out in jaws and alien and, and so on. Um, adding conspiracy after conspiracy after conspiracy to twin peaks, it kind of diminishes the unique approach to uh, the weird, uh, you know, American mysteriousness uh, that the show accomplished. So um, in, in true doppelganger fashion, uh, I will both agree and disagree uh, with my esteemed uh, colleague, Jennifer. And, and I will, <laughs> I want to add in there too, that I think some of it also is in service to the fans who have been probably um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. discussing all these conspiracy theories and then it shows up in here and, and our, our agent, um, Tamara even has something in the footnotes about how she did all this research about owls and like found so much of it to be hooey, which I thought was hilarious and amazing because she's calling attention to the fact that, you know, like I I've seen crazy conspiracy theory stuff. There was a guy who's obsessed with Stephen King and links him to John Lennon's death. And he has these documents where he has got things kind of bolded out here and there. And he used to always set up a van and, you know, I had one of his documents one time and it's just, you know, it's often the, the work of somebody who is actually um, insane. Um, so I think, I think she's pointing that out that even as she's trying to understand these secrets and mysteries, um, she, she cast off some of it as, as hooey in her words. And like, I'm pretty sure that it's in uh, Tamara Preston's notes somewhere, but she, I think even mentions like, Oh, like, you know, now, you know, like this sort of like line of conspiracy thinking, you know, you know, has given rise to, I think like, you know, like podcasters and things like that. And, I will just say, bear that in mind as we sort of go into season three, because um, they have a lot of fun with like sort of, you know, like people getting too like crazy dealt into conspiracies. And I kind of think that like, you know, I rolled my eyes a lot, like every time it was like, oh, hey, this guy's involved with the Kennedy assassination or, you know, like, oh, here, here's this like famous moment in history. I don't think that really like helps tell the story of Twin Peaks you know, in that regard, I'm kind of on maybe, you know, Colin's devil advocate side in that, right? Uh, but, you know, I, you know, Lewis and Clark are everywhere in, you know, the history of Washington State, right? I mean, we have a county, two counties, one named after Lewis, one named after Clark in southwestern Washington. So it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, you can't kind of like avoid those guys when it comes to, you know, you know, getting into sort of the frontier history of this part of the the country. But I think, you know, maybe Frost is overkilling it a little bit here. Uh, uh, that's sort of my take on it. Yeah, I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm going to stake out sort of a middle position here as well and say, uh, you know, I, I like some of the some of the early history. I mean, we are told in the show that, you know, there's something that this dark force in the woods is ancient and generations of people have been, you know, uh, fighting against it or what have you. And so. I mean, some of that early stuff with um, Lewis and Clark and the prospectors and, um, you know, some of that stuff, I feel like is a pretty good fit, actually, with some of the mythology of the show. But um, I think maybe 
Frost's reach exceeds his grasp here a little bit when he gets into some of the UFO stuff. It just feels it's too far afield from Twin Peaks. It doesn't feel like Twin Peaks to me. It honestly feels more X-Files than Twin Peaks. Um, and uh, it, I don't know. There's just I, I get a little bored with some of the the UFO stuff, frankly. Same. And it it um, it it uh, it just doesn't feel right to me. And I guess that's not a very um, robust argument, but um, <laughs> but <laughs> but it just doesn't feel Twin Peaksy to me. A lot of it. And so you know, I actually think that uh, like this book could have been more successful from my perspective, if it had been a little bit more circumscribed and stayed around the town a little bit more, um, I would have loved to have read about, read some more about like other encounters that people had with strange forces in the woods and less about like UFOs over Utah or something. It's just like, that just feels like a different story to me. Yeah. You know, there are parts of it that I was super intrigued about. Um, with the idea, you know, so one of the inconsistencies was on the show, Briggs gets some message in the space junk, um, Cooper, 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 but in the dossier, the message is coming from the woods. Um, and so I, I liked all of these elements where this mysterious stuff was actually coming from earth or from underground. And the idea that there were caves or these sort of lava tubes, um, you know, potentially with underground cities, like to me, that was really interesting and kind of new information and a new way to look at places like the Black Lodge and the White Lodge that that you were going into a portal and maybe going underground into this world, which I hadn't thought about before. I hadn't really thought about the geography of these places. Um, and I think that they give us little tantalizing clues, but um, but not enough for, for us to fully understand it. So I think I liked that. And, and there's a lot of talk in the dossier about mysteries versus secrets and secrets being, you know, the things that um, are related to power. And, you know, it's the military, it's the politicians, it's those people with power who are keeping secrets and mysteries are the things that have always been there. The whole notion of like there being like underground caves is relatively geographically accurate because like like if you're you know gonna assume that Twin Peaks is in the northwest corner of Washington State all of that land was formed by like volcanic ash where there's eruptions and then erosions and eruptions and erosions and so all that land out there is sort of you know would have been sort of created or grown up in that vein so you know Mark Frost is not far off for some of that stuff but um sort of as a nice little sort of fun way to close this section out, even though I just sort of maybe bashed the idea of having, you know, perhaps too much, you know, bits of American history sort of involved with the narrative here. One thing that the secret history reminded me of uh, was um, Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's sort of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series. And lo and behold, he also made something called the Black Dossier, which attempts to, I mean, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is sort of like, you know, these a, a traditional English like heroes like Alan Quartermain and Mina Murray going on like other adventures like H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds or, you know, things like that. And in Black Dossier, Moore and O'Neill kind of do what Frost does here and they just blow everything up, right? They're like, hey, we're going to take this from a little itty bitty story to like a massive story. So if you guys could have perhaps someone 
either real or fictional from you know the American fabric perhaps encounter some of our characters in peak like in Twin Peaks like what would they be or you know who would you want to have sort of you know come enter this narrative well if you're going to keep adding more historical figures to this um to this book I I'm going to say uh Woody Guthrie um I think you know reading about reading Woody Guthrie's account of uh, a run-in with a, you know, entity from the Red Room, um, I think would just be amazing. Um, you know, we know he spent some time in the area when he was, you know, writing Roll on Columbia and whatnot. So, you know, it's not so, so far afield to imagine that he could have been, uh, you know, wandering through the vicinity and, um, you know, sought shelter from the rain with his guitar in a strange cave. And, you know, maybe there would be a song about it on the audiobook or something. Carl or Jennifer, do you guys have a, like a suggestion or a thought? Cause I have one, but I'll let you guys go first. Uh, I don't know, but I mean, somebody else who appears, I think towards the end is Donald Trump, which I think is really bizarre. Like there's this scene where, uh, or there's a moment where they talk about Lana budding. Like there's a rumor that she was involved with a real estate mogul with, I don't know, bad hair. And I was like, oh my God, are they actually inserting Donald Trump into this also? Um, so that's crazy. But um, yeah, I'm going to keep thinking about my answer and, and turn to Colin because maybe he has somebody he wants to put in the Twin Peaks world. Well, there are a lot of folks who get pulled in. And of course there is the sort of the regional question. Um, but you know one of the one of the great american uh mysteries or or that's not exactly the right word but sort of the secret history of 19th century america uh was the underground railroad and all of the many uh people uh and institutions that that quietly helped um, bring uh, enslaved people from the South to um, free states. And, you know, I, I, I would love to um, think that, uh, you know, Frederick Douglass uh, had a, uh, you know, a period of, of time when uh, his journals were not being completed, you know, had a, a missing six month trip that uh, brought him out, uh, brought him out West, uh, something like that. Uh, so, you know, I don't know, it's a bit of a reach, but we're reaching, right? So. so mine, uh, cause I thought about the section where Norma and Hank go to Hollywood or, you know, take their little vacation to California. And I mean, I'm tempted to put like Charles Manson in here, but Tarantino, <laughs> I thought did an excellent job with that alternative history in his film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But if we're going to stick with like, you know, any sort of fictional characters or settings are fair game, uh, why not have Norma and Hank stop by the uh, Silencio bar that features very, very prominently in a very, very key scene in Mulholland Drive, which we will discuss uh, at some point when we talk about Mulholland Drive. But I mean, you know, it's often suggested that Lynch's sort of films take place in the same universe. And it would have been nice to maybe have uh, Frost throw a little nod to that. I love this conversation. Uh, it's a ton of fun. I have been pulling up notes of uh, other pop culture items that I <laughs> that I want to reference in the conversation. I just want to quickly mention in the uh, spirit of 
alternate universes, um, the show's uh, Fringe, which we have mentioned before, Timeless, which is a fun uh, history time travel uh, adventure show. Also, uh, Counterpart, not not set in America, set in Berlin, actually, but uh, Counterpart was a fantastic sci-fi thriller with J.K. Simmons about uh, a split uh a dimensional split and um people uh uh you know conducting espionage across uh the border it was really uh really a lot of fun um and there are more but uh what i wanted to talk about you know this book is really ambitious and it it it's it is as big a literary crossover as i've seen i mean there are a lot of you know there are you know, scads of uh, books in the Star Wars universe and Star Trek universe and Doctor Who universe and so on. Um, but for, you know, a single chunk, uh, this is a really ambitious uh, sort of thing. Um, and, you know, it, it, uh, it has its origins in uh, media, uh, contemporary media. We've always loved tie-ins to our stories you know um comics were uh uh another medium where you could you know listen to tom mix on uh the radio and then read about his adventures in the sunday comics um you know you could uh save up box tops and get a uh you know, a, a magnifying glass to use on your adventures or a secret decoder ring and things like that. We really love the, um, uh, when, when our stories, um, kind of, kind of puncture our reality there, there's something childlike about, uh, discovering something in the real world. It kind of reignites, uh, your imagination that adulthood kills. Um, and so we love it. And, and that's part of why I like this, uh, this book. It's, it's also um, somewhat problematic in a number of ways. Some ones we've talked about. Um, I, uh, I, I, I sort of see that um, this project, the secret history as well as the show, um, they they lean on Western simplifications of Native American culture and and stories, and you know we we've said at various times you know you can't go back and uh, critique a show for not living up to you know the standards thirty years later, but you know this was a this was a piece that came out in. Um, you know, in the last decade. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it makes sense. Um, you know, Lynch uh, and Frost are, you know, they were, they were boys in the fifties and there was all the media culture around that. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, the use of native American culture uh is is too simplistic and and sort of makes you know native americans magical and mystical and um of course we we 
<laughs> uh, white uh, folks have made Native Americans, uh, you know, practically aliens in their own countries. You know, it's it's a very complicated and weird thing. Um, and I sort of feel like uh, there has been a, a a wonderful emergence of Native American uh, creative work in in film and TV and uh, even in gaming. Um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, things like Reservation Dogs, um, which is a fantastic TV comedy by Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi. Lots of great directors and writers. Um, can't recommend it enough. It's really fun. Um, and uh, I'm thinking about <laughs> the zombie movie Blood Quantum uh, directed by Jeff Barnaby, which is really fun. Uh, and I recently backed a uh, game on Kickstarter uh, called um, Coyote and Crow, which um, is, uh, you know, created by uh, Native American game designers um, who have set up a, a, you know, a gaming system that uh, reflects their own uh, stories. Um, and, and so there's a lot of really interesting uh, creative work that is out there. And, um, you know, I think we, we, we could be tapping into it. And, and uh, even though I think Twin Peaks is maybe better than some other properties, I sort of feel like they missed a chance to, you know, do something more than just the, you know, the, the cookie cutter things. Um, white people who are creatives should really be careful about what we think we know about other cultures, especially indigenous um, uh, communities uh, here in um, America. And we should, you know, show respect first um, and, you know, and then try and, and have a, a creative dialogue. It could only improve our, our storytelling. Um, so my question for the crew is, um, what could the Twin Peaks universe have created if uh, there had been um, Native American writers working on it? I'm, I'm sort of asking you to speculate about an alternative universe, uh, but uh, what do you think? I mean, I think there would be a lot more nuance. Um, I I had the great opportunity to talk to this comic artist and and writer, Aragon Starr, who uh, she wrote The New Adventures of Super Indian, uh, which was turned, well, it was initially a radio drama and then became a comic. And so it has like all these pieces like we're talking about, you know, existing in a lot of different worlds. Um, and she was talking about the importance of comedy and humor in in Native American culture and, and felt like that was often missing from some mm -hmm. of these, you know, stereotypical stories that are told. Um, but then, you know, back back to Twin Peaks, just sort of to add on to some of the things you're saying um, in in the secret history. Um, we also get a lot of Dr. Jacoby, who is valorizing native peoples uh not only in in the americas but also in other parts of the world and you know he has spent a considerable t amount of time studying uh and and hanging out with people in other cultures and you know taking taking drugs with them and um and feeling like 
you know, there's this path to spirituality that comes from their way of life. But he also has a segment in the dossier where he talks about how he's really grown tired of of being a psychiatrist for, you know, kind of disaffected housewives and teenagers, um, and that some of the problems he sees in 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 America like don't exist in Native culture. So it's it's interesting. Like he's he's stereotyping Native culture in this very romanticized way that, oh, it's this um, it's this perfect world. Which you know, I think I think that's probably not true either. And and that's probably a disservice to have, um, you know, this sort of fant fantasy, fantasy life of, of this perfect existence. And that's sort of like his, that's his slice of the narrative about Native people. Colin, I think to answer your question, you know, what would the show have been like uh, if it had more Native voices on it? Or if, you know, Frost and Lynch would have like, you know, had a collaborator, you know, this sort of, you know, that would be like Nez Perce or, you know, someone like that from the region. I, you know, I just think you would get like a little more perspective because, uh, you know, Frost, I think kind of his big sin, if you want to use that word. I mean, he was the one, you know, who he sort of identified as being sort of guilty for sort of, you know, the valorization of like, oh, like, look at like, you know, Robert E. Lee is just like, you know, tragic, misguided hero. And I think we all, you know, rightly called BS on that and you get kind of that here too with like lewis and clark right like that you know you're kind of getting like the hero version of those guys and you know not the fact that like hey clark owned slaves and perhaps they weren't all too kind uh, uh, to the the you know the you know the folks that were working in their employ and really what right do these white dudes have just you know going west and you know claiming this country as their own right i'd like you know, Frost doesn't really sort of examine that. And I think that perspective would have been brought in. I think it's also like a little unfair for like, you know, Michael Horst to sort of, you know, be sort of like all things Indian in Twin Peaks, right? Because he's a Yaki uh, who is, you know, from a totally different part of country than, you know, where the Nez Perce are from. And while I think Horst is amazing and a uh, uh, spoiler, he's going to be the first character we talk about in our deep dive for season three. Uh, um, but, um, you know, like you, like you kind of get like, you know, sort of that tokenization almost. I don't think that it's quite there, but it's like you're, you know, me as someone who is, you know, half Mexican is always, oh, you're like a, you know, you're a Mexican. What do like Peruvians feel about that? I'm like, the hell if I know, man, I'm not Peruvian, right? <laughs> you know, so you get, you know, so I feel that he's kind of like burdened with like, you know, being the voice of all of that, like on, you know, Twin Peaks. And they kind of like, hey, you know, we, you know, cast this great actor in like this native role, which cool, awesome, right? But, you know, you just don't like, this is still like a white dude's narrative, right? It's not really like, you know, you don't get the female perspective and you don't get like the minority perspective, which would have, I think, you know, been nice to be like, hey, like what right do these dudes have really to go west at all? Right. Like that's never reckoned with at all in, you know, the show or this book or, you know, any of that sort of stuff. Maybe it's not like the job of like, you know, Twin Peaks to do that. But I think, yeah, kind of now in, you know, 2021, there's no reason why we can't like have a little pushback against sort of these preconceived narratives that Americans have about you know, the white dudes who shaped this country for better or for worse. Well, I think with, with Jacoby, um, you get little glimmers of that. I mean, it's, it's clearly not a lot, but, but he has moments in there where he will point out some of these things about, you know, the land being stolen from the native people. Um, and so I, I wonder if that was an attempt to kind of insert some of that perspective into the narrative of the dossier by by giving Jacoby some of that 
but they also, I think, clearly like make Jacoby out to be a total quack in like this book. And he does lose his license in the end of the dossier, also. Yeah, deservedly <laughs> to so. Practice psychiatry. Um, so like uh, you know you could read like this narrative and i mean he frost puts it in here right when he has like you know he sort of gives that chief joseph speech to like i think it's like like the president or congress at the time right where he basically says that like you know hey like you know the, the u.s has never really been held accountable for like you know the sort of the theft of our land and one could read sort of twin peaks as a whole as like hey perhaps these like forces are sort of a, a reaction to sort of the rape of the land or sort of the invasion of like, you know, white settlers in here and kind of everything that's happening is because of this like original sin of westward expansion. One reading you could make from this narrative. Well, and, and later in the dossier, um, you know, they have land stolen again, like reservation land is then stolen. Yeah. It's by eminent domain and it's taken over to build a nuclear power plant. And then, um, Hanford. And and then that land is poisoned, essentially. So yep. we have details in there about, you know, what a horrible turn of events that that this land is then like ruined for generations of these people. Colin, your question makes me think about <clears throat> a couple of moments in uh, the first two seasons, as well as a couple that are going to be coming up in the third season, where Michael Horse's character kind of talks about the legends uh, and sort of connections between um, what's going on with um, with you know doppelgangers and the White Lodge and the Black Lodge and and um, leg you know Native American legends and you know I'm a little embarrassed to say I you know I don't know enough to know if there's any basis in factual actual legends but I'm guessing that there isn't. Um, and I think if there had been Native American writers working on Twin Peaks, I think we might have actually gotten a much deeper and more interesting sort of connection there. Um, I think it's really natural to be, um, you know, fascinated with the the legends of other peoples. Um, but this, as far as you talked about missed opportunities, I think, you know, there could have been an opportunity here one, to tell sort of a richer story about how these mysterious forces in the woods might have connected with, um, you know, Nez Perce legends of some kind. Um, but also, you know, maybe even, and again, as, as Jonathan said, maybe this isn't the job of Twin Peaks, right? But also maybe to be a little bit educational even, for, <laughs> for lack of a better word, to actually, like, give people something to chew on as far as, like, well, you know, what did the Nez Perce actually believe about the, you know, the spiritual world? I personally don't know. And, um, you know, I don't even know enough to say if, if what's represented in the show is in any way connected to anything that, that they might have believed. And, um, you know, I think the show would have been richer for diving more deeply into that and also could have had the, you know, the potential to share some knowledge about another culture in a way that I don't feel like it really carries off right now. Well, and, you know, here in, you know, liberal deep blue state Washington, right? I mean, if you go to like, this is something that I noticed on like my kids Zoom meetings over the pandemic, right? But if you go into like any sort of like public meeting, at least in this city, I don't know if this is true in like different parts of the state, but they always like, 
oh, you know, and we're meeting on like, uh, you know, what was like Duwamish lands or, you know, wherever, you know, your, you know, tribe was. Or if you're in Bellingham, you might be on like Salish land or if you're, you know, uh, uh, over on the Olympic Peninsula, it might be like Sklalem land or something like that. Right. So I, I, you know, I do think white folks, especially in this region, are finally starting to reckon with the fact that, hey, we're on stolen land. Uh, but you don't and, you know, perhaps if there is, you know, a fourth season or, you know, you know, Lynch's Wisteria, they can kind of work some of that in there. Just again, it doesn't need to be like the whole thing, but like just, you know, nods or acknowledgements of, you know, some of that stuff I think would like sort of, I think, whet that, you know, appetite for curiosity and you know, honor the history of, you know, what's happened here. Well, we've been talking a little bit about some of the voices that have been left out of Twin Peaks and out of the secret history and women's voices are definitely part of that. And we, we have a lot of male stories in the secret history of Twin Peaks um, and, and not as many things from the perspective of women. Um, but we do have some sort of tantalizing bits of new information about some of the women of Twin Peaks. And that's what I want to talk about today in particular with Josie Packard and, and how the Josie plot thickens. Um, so, I mean, it's no surprise that I've been intrigued by the Josie Packard character since the very first episode of Twin Peaks, when she's the first person that we see. And as we dig further into her mystery, things have become increasingly complicated. The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer gave us some extra clues or tales about Josie. And now in the secret history, we're supposedly, you know, now that Damon has like cast doubt on the entire dossier, we're <laughs> supposedly getting details from an Interpol investigation about Josie. We've already discussed that much of what we knew on Twin Peaks from Josie was a web of lies, that she may have presented herself as someone different from who she really was. And by the end of season two, we're led to believe that she had a traumatic childhood, was an orphan, worked as a prostitute, um, and was also involved in the attempted murder of her husband, Andrew Packard. But the story is much different in secret history. So if we're to believe the dossier, Josie was born to a prostitute mother who overdosed on heroin. Her father was a gang member in a Red Pole enforcer and he allegedly raised and trained her, sending to an exclusive boarding school in Shanghai, where she ended up running a drug and prostitution ring in, in which she entrapped school administrators and faculty, and then emerged from that whole incident unscathed. Um, and then, you know, after that, she founded a fashion label in Hong Kong and, and could have worked as a model. And, and then, was fluent in six languages and initiated into her father's triad and as a, was apparently worth a fortune by the age of 21. Um, and then her father was murdered and Josie was a suspect. So a contract was put out on her life, prompting her to disappear. So at age 27, she meets Andrew Packard telling him she's only 19 and an orphan, but she's described in the dossier as a patricidal sociopath. Um, when she arrives in Twin Peaks, her English isn't great, and she seeks out both Pete Martell and Laura Palmer for English lessons, 
even though we are now led to believe that she has perfect English and, you know, is fluent in six languages. So, uh, you know, there's much more to the story there. And along these lines, I was also intrigued that the dossier has some brief speculation about Lana Budding, who may have been a paid assassin. And, and so, you know, she becomes involved with, with Milford, who is at the center of the dossier as, you know, working in the military and investigating all sorts of UFOs and, um, you know, other mysterious activities. Um, and so now that we know more about him, it actually seems plausible that Lana could have been brought in as an assassin. And we also learned in the dossier that, that he was quite wealthy. Um, and so she, you know, came into a fortune after he died. I'm wondering what you all think if, if what we learn in the dossier, is that a satisfying twist in the Josie tale? Do we believe this more than the other lies that we heard <laughs> on the show? And then as far as Lana, does the assassin speculation seem credible? And why do you think Frost attributes assassin qualities to both Josie and Lana? And, and we know Josie has has killed other people. Um, and then is all of this problematic since both characters are presented as having hypnotic sexual powers? Um, so, you know, they're both kind of portrayed as sexual assassins. Um, and they both lied to their paramours or victims claiming to be younger than they were. I think both claim to be 19 even though both men who they were, um, you know, ensnaring into their, into their worlds uh, were much older to begin with. In fact, both were senior citizens. So, you know, what do we make of all of that? In regards to the Josie question, we'll start there first, right? Uh, like, if you look at that section, that's one of the few parts of the document that are written by Agent Cooper himself, right? So, you know, I'm led to believe, you know, at least if we're going to buy that this is, you know, the Cooper that we see in the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, that this is more or less an accurate portrayal if we're to believe sort of, you know, his skills as an investigator and sort of like operating uh, under sort of his MO of like being honest and, you know, wanting to like, you know, sort of let, you know, Truman know about sort of the true nature of Josie. Um, and I think like this is the perfect place for it. If you were to like delved into the show with like all this like, you know, crazy backstory with Josie being an assassin and like a daughter of a, you know, organized crime figure and all this sort of stuff. I mean, hey, if it would have gone like four or five seasons, perhaps you could have weaved some of that stuff in. But I'd like that you get it here, right? It's and, you know, who's to say if we're going to go by Damon's theory, if this is like, you know, fake information or real information. But I'm inclined to believe that this is one of the sections where you know, we can take it at face value because it's Agent Cooper. And even if it was like, say, the Cooper, uh, uh, you know, doppelganger, like, you know, what, you know, what does he, you know, stand to gain by like making up a BS story about Josie, right? So, you know, I'm inclined to believe that what we're reading here, you know, is, is true from, you know, sort of the, you know, what we know about who's telling the story and who is relaying the information. But I guess in terms of like Frost, I mean, it, Josie's always been a like like a underwritten sort of you know problematic character that you know plays in a lot of the sort of the you know the stereotypes about like the exotic Asian woman and you know those sorts of things. So you know like you know kind of like what we've been saying for a lot of us here, right? Like you know like a double-edged sword. Like I think like really intriguing and interesting backstory, but also I think you know plays off of a lot of unfortunate racial stereotypes. 
I want to second most of what uh, most of what Jonathan said. I I do find this to be um, in some ways a more credible backstory for Josie, though. Um, you know, the fact that this like sophisticated uh, businessman has you know has become well, two of them really became so obsessive about her. I you know that's just much more believable to me with the background that's described here with somebody who's like founded a fashion label and like went to uh, a good school. And, um, you know, we have these sort of like rags to riches stories, um, especially in like, I don't know, Hallmark movies and stuff where the like, like sophisticated rich guy falls in love with the like destitute woman and takes her off the street or whatever. But, you know, that's all a lot of like Cinderella beauty and the beast nonsense right like that doesn't happen because uh people like those men are just not looking for people like poor women um that's that just isn't a thing that happens in <laughs> in real life um unless it's just like a purely exploitive relationship um and you know not usually one that's like long term in the way that the the relationships that Josie had with um either Eckhart or Packer uh, would suggest. So, you know, I actually, I actually find this pretty believable. The Lana stuff. No, um, <laughs> that, there's um, I, I just don't see anything in the portrayal of that character that we get in season two that, that makes me buy into this at all. Honestly, I question the whole Doug Milford story to begin with. Um, so, uh, you know, no, I don't, I don't buy that at all. Um, you know, to me, she's one of the most unlikable characters on, on the show, maybe after Dick Tremaine and little Nikki, um, because she is just this like two dimensional sex pot. I, I just don't think there's any there there. I, I feel like this is just a stretch as far as, as far as that character goes. Um, why these characters are depicted in this way? I mean, I think the the short answer is like, you know, deep-seated cultural misogyny. But, um, you know, if I'm being a little more generous, I could say that I think um, Mark Frost here is leaning hard into some film noir tropes um, of the, you know, the femme fatale and, um, you know, is is playing with some of that here, especially with the Josie character. Um, but this business with Lana, no, I think that's silly. I, th I think that was a, a poor writing choice. Yeah, same. And like, I mean, if we are to believe that like Dougie, uh, uh, I should say Dougie Milford uh, uh, is, you know, sort of like been this, you know, like guy who, you know, kind of, you know, works his way up through like the army ranks. He's clearly not presented as someone who's stupid or like can be hoodwinked very easily. And, you know, the margin notes by Agent Preston suggest that he might have been like a man in black, like sort of, you know, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones style. Like, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would get hoodwinked by, you know, someone like this, even if she did have sort of like mystical powers and things like that, that he'd be in tune with. So, I mean, they, like, yeah, poor choice by Frost, and like, especially considering that Lana is perhaps like my least favorite character and maybe the least favorite performance in like all the old stuff, like, you know, that's one point where the editor should have been like, hey, dude, let's just take like take this out. The book is already 350 pages long. Why do we need like three more on here? And in the in the dossier, they claim that he had four marriages, including one that was, um, you know, like somebody he had just met. And so his his romantic um, 
encounters in here don't seem to fit uh, the story that we're being told about the character. So again, that adds credence back to Damon's suggestion that perhaps all the stuff about Douglas Milford is, is, you know, fake or made up, you know, if Lada doesn't fit and then all his other relationships that are kind of these fly-by-night relationships, if that doesn't fit with his personality. Well, folks, here we are again at the twist. And if you've listened to our uh, other episodes about books, you know what's coming. Um, the question here that I'm going to ask my co-hosts is, is the secret history of Twin Peaks canon? And do we care? I would speculate that um, one, one, one needs to consider it canon. but you have made a convincing case damon that while it may be canon it is not necessarily reliable so <laughs> if something is canon but is not reliable i'm not sure where that actually puts it but uh that would be kind of a lynchian thing right something that is two things at once and not what it seems. Uh, so, you know, I think we could take this, uh, uh, the existence of the dossier as canon. Um, and I think we uh, can can see through a lot of the uh, misleading clues and errors and things uh, and, and not take it too seriously in that regard. I think it should be canon if we think about canon as being simply something that's important to your experience of uh, processing the show. So I don't think it, you know, we don't know, we don't know what's true. We don't know what's not true. We don't know who intended for this to be a mixture of truth and falsehood. And that doesn't matter. I think that whole experience of this kind of uh, book remaining a mystery is part of the whole experience of, of the show Twin Peaks. So I think that makes it canonical. I'm going to try to adhere to some of the standards I set in some of the previous episodes in regard to is this or is this not canon? I mean, one, it's it's written by a co-creator of Twin Peaks, man. So it's not like we're getting like, you know, someone's like fan fiction or like, you know, like a Star Wars book that's like written by someone that's like four or five degrees removed from like Lucas or some of the creators, right? This is Mark Frost, right? This is, you know, not his brother or not Lynch's daughter. It's one of the creators of the show. So it checks that box. Um, like two, does it add or, you know, enhance the, you know, experience of sort of enjoying the overall Twin Peaks? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, um, I mean, it's like, it's like of the three books, it's probably the one that I think is the least entertaining or like, I think maybe the least focused in certain regards. I think some of that is by design, but you know, you, and especially for some of the ways it sets up for the third season, which I don't want to go into to not spoil you guys. Yeah, I'm going to say that checks that box too. And then, you know, does it like disrespect anything that came before? And, and no, I'm going to say it like it doesn't, even though there's, you know, tons of like perhaps like deliberate falsehoods. It's not like, you know, taking a big dump on like what we've already like read or, you know, experienced before. So yeah, it checks all three boxes. It's canon. Although I will say that like it doesn't do what I think like a lot of people want it to do, which is sort of connect the dots between 
end of season two and beginning of season three, right? So if you're, and, and, and that's also like, I think in like true Twin Peaks fashion, right? You expect one thing and you're getting something totally different. So, you know, that's sort of where I'm at with secret history. Definitely can it. I'm going to go with uh, probably. I'm going to say probably. So first of all, you know, as Colin pointed out, the fact that it that we think it's canon doesn't mean that we think it's reliable. And if we keep those two things separate, you know, uh, <laughs> that, um, you know, that goes a long ways for me. Um, I, you know, I think probably we can say this was, you know, in the world of Twin Peaks, something that was created for some purpose. Um, and I'm not sure that we can, <laughs> that we've landed on anything much more definitive than that. The, the two things that make me say probably instead of definitely is one, David Lynch has been quite clear about the fact that he doesn't consider it to be such. He's on the record saying um, this is Mark Frost's version of Twin Peaks. It's not mine and I haven't read it. Um, so so that, you know, raises an eyebrow for me. And then the second thing is, and, you know, maybe this is just me and uh, I, I hope this isn't too spoilery, but I kept waiting for all of season three for this freaking thing to show up in the show. They describe what it looks like and what the box that it came in. And I just kept waiting for it to show up or at least be referred to. And it wasn't, you know? And so whereas with Laura Palmer's diary, that's like very clearly an artifact from the show. Um, I had issues with my life, my tapes, but at least, you know, we know Cooper makes tapes, right? Um, this is, doesn't show up anywhere. Um, this document doesn't show up. None of the documents inside it show up. There's no reference to it. That to me just makes it a little bit dubious um, in combination with the, with the David Lynch quote. With that said, it is by Mark Frost. And, uh, you know, I'm not exactly playing de devil's advocate here uh, because I'm going to say probably it's canon. You know, I'll just say that I don't think Lynch is the arbiter of like what is or is not canon, nor is Mark Frost. I think that's for us to decide. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. And what if David Lynch was messing with us by issuing that quote saying that it he wasn't definitely canon. is, man. <laughs> I, like whatever, you know, he says he doesn't like or he hasn't seen some of season two, but then you like, you know, read in, you know, art, like articles where he like talks about stuff that happens there. So I think he's like leading this along when he, you know, says he doesn't consider that stuff official Twin Peaks, whatever that means in his own brain. Well, folks. The podcast ends here. Don't go heading to the LPA alone when you can have your friends from Back to the Double R accompany you. As always, we can be found wherever you download your podcasts and broadcast them into your ear holes. Find more answers at our website, backtothedoublear.com, where you can find all of our previous episodes, supplementary articles from each of our co-hosts, artwork by me, and much more. We would also invite you to follow us on the social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and drop us a line at backtothedoublear at gmail.com. As always, we thank Pittsburgh Silencio for providing the intro, outro, and interstitial music you hear on the pod. Please invite any of your Twin Peaks loving friends or hell, slap an owl ring on their fingers and force them back into this wacky world of coffee, pie, and mystery. Lastly, as we turn the calendar into 2022, we will finally be diving into Twin Peaks the return, aka season three. Go and get you a subscription to the Showtime app or the Hulu slash Amazon Prime add-ons. Buy it on physical or digital media. We here at Back the Double R do not condone piracy and watch all 18 amazing parts with us. We literally cannot wait. See you next year, folks.